We're back. In our second half, we're going to try and get away from the day-to-day commentary of what's going on in this world of ours. We never intended for Radio Parallax to really be that kind of show. We wanted it to be more of a show about anything and, you know, the kind of show that might go pull an article from the Smithsonian from February of 1991 and talk about that. Hey, there's an idea. <laughs> I've been sitting on this piece for a while now, long before I had a radio program, because it was a rather provocative article and remains so today. Think about talking about an article like this is it, it takes a while to get through, but it, it's a fine piece. It was well written. Author was someone named Jay Stuller. So let's talk about it. The title was Cleanliness Has Only Recently Become a Virtue. Let us now quote from the piece. In the leading public health textbook of 1908, W.T. Sedgwick noted that because personal hygiene is a means to control infectious diseases, quote, the absence of dirt is not merely an aesthetic adornment, unquote. Yet, with an aside that still carries an odd ring these eight, eight decades later, well, I guess this is now 11 decades later, Sedgwick granted that cleanliness is, quote, doubtless an acquired taste, unquote. The author notes that the average American has by now acquired that taste, at least claiming to shower or bathe more than seven times a week. That hygiene promotes health is a given. We also live in a culture where the suppression of natural body odors by colognes and perfumes is expected, if not guaranteed. To continue, in response to the debauchery of Roman baths, the early Christian church frequently discouraged cleanliness. Commanded St. Benedict, to those that are well, and especially to the young, bathing shall seldom be permitted. St. Francis of Assisi considered an unwashed body a stinking badge of piety. Queen Isabella of Castile, noted as one of the Catholic monarchs, along with her husband Ferdinand, boasted that she had only two baths in her life, at birth and before her marriage. Colonial leaders in America deemed bathing impure, since it promoted nudity, which could only lead to promiscuity. Laws in Pennsylvania and Virginia either banned or limited bathing. For a time, in Philadelphia, anyone who bathed more than once a month faced jail. Sedgwick's comment came at a time of transition, when personal hygiene wasn't as widespread an American habit. In fact, as the article will make clear, through great periods of European and much of U.S. history, cleanliness was inconvenient, religiously proscribed, or just plain out of fashion. Living happily unwashed were saints, the masses, and monarchs alike. Skipping ahead. Throughout much of the 19th century, the article goes on to quote V.W. Green, professor of epidemiology at Ben-Gurion Medical School in Beersheba, in Beersheba, Israel, as saying that throughout much of the 19th century, Europeans and Americans lived in wretched filth and many died young of associated disease. The mortality rates from the 1800s show an incredible number of deaths from infant diarrhea. Then around the turn of the century, infant mortality rates plunged. Something remarkable happened. That something, insists Green, is that Western societies finally came clean. Many other behavioral, environmental, and medical changes were taking place at about the same time, but in what can only be described as a health revolution and personal hygiene is the hidden hero. I would pause this moment to probably dispute that and note that 
uncontaminated public water supplies may have been more important than bathing or medical interventions, but you know, that's a subject one could debate. But to continue with the piece, throughout history, personal cleanliness has been greatly influenced by religion, culture, and technology. It's an uneven history with no straight line of progress. Rather, unambitious civilizations adopted hygienic practices while otherwise grand and powerful societies shunned them. The Polynesians, for example, were far cleaner than the European explorers who landed on their islands. It turns out that one of the first known and indisputable bathtubs in history comes from Minoan Crete, supposedly built for the legendary King Minos around 1700 BC and found in the Great Palace at Knossos. It's of a shape similar to modern tubs. Even more impressive is that the palace plumbing system that served the royal tub. Interlocking pieces of terracotta pipes, each tapered at one end to give water a shooting action to prevent the buildup of clogging sediment, were joined and cemented together. Their technology put Minoans in the hydrological vanguard. Although the ancient Egyptians didn't develop such plumbing, they had a penchant for hygiene, evident in their use of fresh linen and body ointments, also skin conditioners, and deodorants of the day. As described in the 1500 BC Ebert's Papyrus, these ancients washed and treated skin diseases with soapy materials made of animal and vegetable oils and alkaline salts. From bas-reliefs and tomb excavations, there's evidence that Egyptians sat in a shallow kind of shower bath while attendants poured water over the bather. The article speculates that Egyptians were also cleaning themselves in the Nile, where, as we know, by popular legend, while bathing one day, a pharaoh's daughter spied a small basket made of rushes snagged in the weeds. It was a baby boy who grew up to become a rather notable leader and lawgiver, the savant of sanitation, Moses, were to issue cleanliness criteria as well as moral precepts. As a sign of religious purification, and to be ready to hear the word of Jehovah, he ordered his Hebrew followers to wash their clothing. The article notes the Greeks certainly were not unclean, and in fact they prized cleanliness, although they apparently did not use soap. The Greeks anointed their bodies with oil and ashes, scrubbed with blocks of pumice or sand, and scraped themselves clean with a curved metal instrument called the strigil, later to be adopted by the Romans. Immersion in water and anointment with olive oil followed. At the peak of ablutive excess, it may have seemed that all of Rome indulged in their baths. In the 4th century AD, the city sported 11 large and magnificent public bathhouses, more than 1,300 public fountains and cisterns, and hundreds of private baths. Served by 13 aqueducts, Rome's per capita daily water consumption averaged about 300 gallons, nearly what an American family of four uses today. The article notes that in the early days of the Roman Republic, according to Seneca, Romans purified themselves once a week at most. Citizens began to frequent the Balneum, a small bathhouse not unlike a neighborhood bar. In 25 BC, Agrippa, the chief deputy to Emperor Augustus, designed and built the first thermae, larger and more elaborate facilities. They triggered a golden age of bathing. Subsequent emperors commissioned increasingly grand thermae, complexes that included restaurants and areas devoted to sports, theater, music, and even sleeping quarters. Either free or charging a nominal fee, the subsidized bath could boost a ruler's popularity. 
Emperor Caracalla's bath, notes author Lawrence Wright, covered an area six times larger than St. Paul's Cathedral in London and could accommodate 1,600 bathers at a time. In case you're wondering, Roman baths are usually opened at midday just as sportsmen finished games or exercise. A bather first entered the tepidarium, a moderately warm room for sweating and lingering. The wealthy man brought slaves to anoint his body with fine oils, some of which included sand to help remove dirt. Poor folk scrubbed themselves with inexpensive lentil flour. Who knew? Next came the calendarium, a hotter room for greater sweating, or perhaps the ultra-hot laconium. In these, the bather doused himself with copious quantities of warm, tepid, or cold water, scraped off with a strigil, sponged, and re-anointed. The Roman would conclude this process by plunging into the cold and refreshing pool, of course known as the frigidarium. The article claims that in Rome, evidently, baths became hotbeds of promiscuity and vice. Some were adjuncts to brothels. Rome's obsession with bathing is said to have been a factor that helped send the empire down the drain, and when it went down the drain, so too went hygiene. The fathers of the early Christian church equated body cleanliness with the luxuries, materialism, paganism, and what's been called the monstrous sensualities of Rome. Noting that within a few centuries, the public and private sanitation practices of Greece and Rome were forgotten, or perhaps more correctly, deliberately repressed. Europe during the Middle Ages, it's often been said, went a thousand years without a bath. But it notes that during those Dark Ages, monks with what were described as worldly thoughts were sometimes sent to chill out in cold baths, several times each year, sometimes. Outside of monasteries, cleanliness depended upon class. Because forks were not widely used until the end of the 17th century. Did you know that, dear listener? It's true. Medieval nobility routinely washed their hands before and after meals. But I do have to pause to wonder about that because chances are they didn't have soap when they were doing this. So I'm not sure how clean hands were getting. Nevertheless, it's noted that etiquette guides of the age insisted that teeth, face, and hands be cleansed each morning. Shallow basins and water jugs for washing hair were found in most manor houses, as was the occasional communal tub. An entire family and guests would hop in when the water was hot. The setting also heated libidos. A common theme in medieval stories and art is romantic assignations that started with a bath. Meanwhile, notes the piece, the Islamic world grew enthusiastic over the hammam whose Arabic name means spreader of warmth. Believing that they enhanced fertility, Muhammad recommended sweat baths. Featuring intricate architecture and decor, but not as large as Roman thermae, hammams offered a series of rooms heated to different temperatures. Crusaders, who enjoyed the Islamic hammams, brought the public bath back to Europe for the first time since the Roman occupation. Called stews, such baths became popular in England and France. But stews ran into trouble because, like their Roman predecessors, they seemed to cause trouble. They were centers for hanky-panky. Some included galleries for voyeurs. Such immoral business and the spread of infection and plague generated ecclesiastical disapproval. Thus, during the reign of Henry VIII, most of England's stews were closed by ordinance. In 1538, Francis I ordered all French stews demolished. For more than a hundred years, the public bath disappeared in Europe until it emerged in a new guise as therapy for a wide variety of ills. 
In the late 1600s, communal bathing arose in France, Germany, Belgium, and England as ostensibly a curative process. The mineral waters at great spas, whose treats were served on floating trays, were said to promote health, wealth, youth, and fertility. They definitely promoted sex. At the resorts of Carlsbad, Marenbad, and the like, refined ladies met with partners known as, quote, bath shadows, unquote. But it should be noted, bathing for cleanliness remained rare, practiced principally by the royals or the wealthy, although even their dedication tended to wax and wane. Magnificent tubs were built in French palaces only to be dismantled and rebuilt during subsequent reigns. In England, commoners found such bathing virtually impossible, considered a luxury item and taxed at 100% soap fit few budgets. Dr. V.W. Green noted that people always talk about the good old days before pesticides and pollution, but in the good old days of Europe and the United States, people lived in filth with human and animal fecal matter all around. Your article goes on to mention how disease ran rampant in such filthy conditions, and there was an effort to improve people's health with such things as vaccinations, pasteurization of milk. But that, of course, came along much later for the most part. The piece notes that nearly 40 diseases are transmitted by feces, urine, and other secretions on contaminated hands or other objects. And no, even though I did go to medical school, don't ask me to name all 40. I have no doubt that Dr. Faith Fitzgerald and others, say at UCD or distinguished institutions, could do so, but I'm not even going to try. The piece notes that the greatest cause of fatal infant diarrhea came from mothers who went to the toilet, didn't wash their hands, and passed along intestinal bacteria to their babies. In 1842, Edwin Chadwick, secretary to Great Britain's Poor Law Commission, whatever that was, reasoned that filth led to disease, and disease led to loss of income and thus poverty. He therefore encouraged the government to improve working-class sanitation standards. Parliament passed the Public Baths and Wash House Acts in 1846, and Gladstone repealed the soap tax in 1853, which cost the British Treasury a million pounds a year. But by that point, according to Harvard science historian Dorothy Porter, it was clear that disease and related destitution were costing England much, much more. Public bathhouses were built, and in 1860, London's 10 public washhouses provided more than 1 million baths. The bathhouse movement spread to America. Stated the October 1892 issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association, if prevention be better than cure, then to fund a great public bath would confer a grander blessing than to erect a hospital. The article notes that portable tubs began appearing in fashionable American households, and along with the traditional Saturday night bath, cleanings grew more frequent. By the 1870s, water heaters were introduced, although the early models were often explosively dangerous devices. Not until World War I did reliable heating devices, good plumbing, and built-in tubs and sinks put convenient bathing within the reach of the ordinary citizen. Think about that. World War I. Just a century ago. Peace notes it still took some teaching to elevate Americans from the dirty. In the 1920s, a New York-based organization called the Cleanliness Institute waged a cleanliness crusade. It turns out that the good people at Procter & Gamble appeared to have been involved in this to some degree. They first extolled the virtues of ivory soap in 1882, which causes me to pause a moment and mention the fact that supposedly, and I have no reason to doubt this, ivory soap, which as you may or may not know, floats unlike most soaps, 
does so because air is whipped into the soap. This was discovered by accident when a workman apparently left the mixer on a little bit too long when the soap was being mixed and it introduced air into the soap, and the fact that this soap floated made it enormously popular, which you know, makes sense. Drop it in the bathtub, doesn't sink to the bottom. But somewhere along the way here, hand-washing finally took hold, which is something to ponder. We're talking about a hundred years ago. And this, no doubt, had a role in displacing infant diarrhea as being the leading cause of of, of infant death in the United States. Some Baltimore mortality figures show that in 1870, 265 babies per 100,000 died of that. By 1920, the rate for diarrheal infant deaths had fallen to 90 per 100,000. Per the article, what continues to baffle Dr. Green is how the unwashed could stand being around one another. He points out there are cultures today where people seldom bathe. They don't seem to be bothered, even though the rest of us can sure tell. It must be something you get used to. Charles Wysocki said that Dr. Green is correct. He studies the chemistry of human olfaction at the Monell Chemical Senses Center in Philadelphia. He says that one grows accustomed to even the most noxious odor. The first day on the job in a tannery, for example, can be overwhelming, but after a few days, the nose adjusts to the environment. Now, let's conclude this look back at the Smithsonian article by noting that sweat baths from hammams to finished saunas can be cleansing. Wiping sweat off with a towel leaves little behind for bacteria to eat and turn into odor. And of course, the odor is more related to your apocrine, apocrine, to your apocrine sweat glands found mainly in the armpit and pubic areas. They emit very mild scent because they contain, well, sebum, oil. Your, your eccrine sweat glands pretty much just put out water with a bit of salt in it. One of the piece notes that while you could get fairly clean using a towel to wipe sweat off, most of us rely on soap and water. Soaps, which are composed of fats, oils, and an alkali, which allows them to mix oil and water, basically loosens the bonds that hold dirt, oil, and bacteria to the skin and suspend them in water. And the piece concludes by discussing the issue of the bath versus the shower. Showers are considered more refreshing, yet reclining in a bath does have psychological and physical merits. Limbs become slightly buoyant in bath water, which takes a load off the muscles and triggers a drop in muscle tension. But what gets you the cleanest? Not a shower, says the American soap company's Shyam Gupta, When you're trying to get really clean, you want to remove dirt, oil, and flakes of dead skin. To get rid of the flakes, the skin needs to be hydrated, which takes soaking. Soapy water is also a surfactant, which reduces the surface tension of the water and helps penetrate the skin. The flakes then float off. To get clean, you need a bath. But there's a catch. The grime that's bound to the soap floats to the top of the bath water. When you stand up, you're covered with film. To get really clean, you bathe, and then you shower. They quote a Colgate Palm Olive survey as noting that Americans average about 11 minutes in the shower. Really? Really? And spend about 20 minutes in a typical bath. Anyway, there's clearly merits to both, but if you really want to be clean, according to this article, and the distinguished retired doctor of the airways, Dr. Dean Adele, yeah, that's the way to do it. Take a bath and then rinse off with a shower. And now you know the rest of the story. Well, it took more time than I expected, but it's interesting to look back at the habits of cleanliness. And it should be noted, too, that, that soap was really, was really a novelty until recent centuries. 
It's, it's not difficult to make a crude soap. If you take the ashes from your fireplace and mix it with fat, you'll probably get something that'll work. Although having made coconut oil soap on a couple of occasions in the past, I got to tell you, to have it come out reasonably well, you have to be pretty fastidious in your preparation. We would note, with no small degree of astonishment, that this month, October of the year 2017, represents the 60th anniversary of Sputnik. We refer you to our archives, where we discussed with author Matthew Brzezinski his book Red Moon Rising, Sputnik and the Hidden Rivalries that Ignited the Space Age. That was a fun one. But you got to keep in mind that Sputnik was the 40th anniversary of the quote-unquote October Revolution of 1917, which we are now celebrating, if that's the right word, the centennial of. Although with a slight caveat, the Russians of the era called it the October Revolution because they were still using the Julian calendar. The rest of the world was using the Gregorian calendar and the October Revolution really took place pretty much in November. But I would like to say a good word or two about the Russian scientist who helped make Sputnik possible and, and was really a pioneer of space travel. His name was Konstantin Tsiolkovsky. While, being, while he's revered in Russia, he's not very well known in the West. Tsiolkovsky was born in 1857 in the small town of Kaluga, 110 miles southwest of Moscow. At 10, he contracted scarlet fever, which left him nearly deaf. Due to his inability to hear, school proved to be difficult, and he dropped out. Later, Tsiolkovsky would take great pride in his self-prescribed education, saying, Besides books, I had no other teachers. In his late teens, he moved to Moscow to study at the world-famous Russian State Library, which is where he discovered the works of Jules Verne. Many of Verne's space stories, like From the Earth to the Moon and Off on a Comet, were growing in popularity around the world, and Tsiolkovsky became entranced by the seemingly fanatical description of rocket propulsion, space travel, and visiting the moon. Tsiolkovsky would later go on to prove that a giant cannon, like the one Jules Verne used in From the Earth to the Moon, would inevitably kill its passengers from the extreme force of acceleration. But Tsiolkovsky had his own theories of propulsion, ones that wouldn't kill the aspiring cosmonaut, and he thought that someone could escape the Earth using liquid fuel if the correct ratio of thrust, velocity, and mass were employed. He eventually fleshed out his theory, which became known as Tsiolkovsky's equation, or the ideal rocket equation. The calculations are likely the first scientifically sound proposal for the use of rockets for space travel. And taking a clue from Jules Verne, Tsiolkovsky created science fiction stories of his own, hoping to spread the science behind his, quote, unbelievable, unquote, ideas. I'm quoting, by the way, from a recent article on Tsiolkovsky in Popular Mechanics. It noted in the magazine that his stories weren't aesthetically beautiful or meant to be high literature. They were meant as pedagogical tools to understand space travel. Tsiolkovsky was a believer in a utopian philosophy known as Russian Cosmism. The thinking went that everything in the universe, from humans to the tiniest grain of sand, has some level of consciousness. When humans die, they simply drift off into space, ready to reanimate on a planet far away from Earth. In his later years, he wrote, The Earth is the cradle of mankind, but one cannot live in the cradle forever. This was often cited by the legendary Carl Sagan as a, as a, a good way to look at things. Yarko notes that while his writing and research were popular in Russia today, for most of his life, Tsiolkovsky worked in obscurity. 
His meditations on liquid propellants, off-Earth colonization, and celestial castles were often ignored by the scientific community because, probably, his lack of formal education, his few connections to the autocracy, and the seemingly outlandishness of his ideas. That changed when 1917's Russian October Revolution toppled the Tsarist government. In the 1920s, when Silikovsky was already in his mid-60s, millions of copies of his earlier works were printed and used as propaganda tools for the totalitarian totalitarian state trying to prove its superiority. Now, it's curious to note that this, this proponent for space exploration, a writer of science fiction stories um, got a lot of publicity in the 20s and 30s when key figures of what would be the Sputnik space program were children. Solikovsky became a mythical figure telling the Russian people that exploring space was possible. And just a few decades later, many people who saw and heard him were doing just that. With Solikovsky's equation as a building block and his sci-fi stories as inspiration, people like Mikhail Tikhonrovov and Sergei Korolov, later known as the chief designer, were the guys that sent the first satellite into space in 1957. And when one of the first Russian space probes flew past the moon, photographing it and sending images back to Earth for the first time of the moon's far side, a rather prominent crater showed up, which the Russians labeled Tsilikovsky Crater. And in closing, I would note that uh, there are interesting parallels about the role of science fiction inspiring actual rocket scientists. And at that end, we would highly recommend our interview here on Radio Parallax, conducted many years back with one of our favorite guests ever, George Pendle, about his book Strange Angel, The Otherworldly Life of Rocket Scientist John Whiteside Parsons. Anyway, I think we should close with the Russian national anthem, Mr. McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax, and I do hope we'll talk more about the Russian Revolution in, in, in programs to come in the very near future. Uh, this show, like all of them, was produced by the aforementioned Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time.